Have you ever noticed that hot pavement has a smell? Not a bad smell, but a distinctive one. Some combination, I'd guess, of dirt and concrete and blacktop mixed together by the heat of the sun. And when I smell it on, on one of our rare, really hot days, it whisks me back to my childhood in Stockton. Smells, odors, fragrances do that because the part of our brain that perceives scent is embedded in the part where emotions are born and memories are stored. The nose has been described as an emotional time machine. In today's passage, we are reminded of this, beginning with a dinner party. Jesus is in the home of his friends, the sisters, Mary and Martha, and their brother Lazarus. Perhaps the smell of the dinner cooking, maybe a lamb stew along with a nice red wine, sparked memories of earlier dinners where people were even more relaxed, more carefree. Those would be the dinners before Jesus went from merely annoying to a serious threat to the authorities, which in John's Gospel happens when he resuscitates Lazarus from the dead. That got everyone's attention. And in the previous chapter, we're told from that day on, they planned to put him to death. Jesus couldn't walk around in the open anymore. So there is another smell in the room. The stench of death wafts over and above the stew, the wine, the freshly baked bread. It just may be that the scent of it lingered on Lazarus' clothes after his four-day stay in the tomb. Maybe that reminded Mary of that moment when she anointed her brother's body for burial, and that triggered the recognition that if, if and when the authorities get a hold of Jesus, it's likely that it won't be possible to perform that same loving service for him. Or maybe she's simply overcome with love. In any event, Mary does something rash and impulsive and over-the-top in every way. She breaks open an expensive bottle of spikenard, that's a, a strongly scented herbal oil thought to have healing properties, and she anoints his feet and uses her hair to wipe them. It was customary hospitality in fine homes for a host to have his slaves wash the feet, feet of the guests. But what Mary does here is not normal. First, she performs the action herself rather than leaving it to a servant. Second, a woman would never touch a man, except her husband and children, and then only in private. Third, a woman would never allow anyone other than her immediate family to see her hair. Fourth, the cleaning of the feet wasn't done with perfume, especially with the amount mentioned here, worth a year's wages for a peasant laborer. The scent triggers something different in Judas, who objects to this extravagance. If it weren't for the fact that it's Judas speaking here, I dare say many of us would agree. There's a perfume called Joy that costs $800 an ounce because it, to make just one ounce, it takes 336 roses and 10,000 jasmine flowers, one ounce. 16 ounces, a pound, would be about $13,000. 
pretty close to what a farm worker earns annually in this country. Can you imagine pouring it all out, all at once, onto someone's feet? Judas has a point. Isn't it better for that precious bottle of perfume to benefit more than just one person? Surely, Jesus, who always taught his disciples about caring for the poor and the downtrodden, will see a Judas way. But Jesus says, leave her alone. Somehow, Jesus' response that the poor will always be with us gets translated into an excuse to do nothing. There's nothing we can do about poverty. The poor will always be there, so why bother? What Jesus meant was, you'll always have the poor with you because you're my disciples. You know who we spend time with. You'll always be near the poor. And Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy here, and the context of that passage is important. In Deuteronomy, part of the Torah, God tells Moses, there will always be poor in the land, Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward those of your people who are poor and needy in your land. But the real reason Jesus doesn't stop Mary is that she shows us something about love. Her actions are shocking in their intimacy, foolish in their loyalty and trust, and indifferent to cultural norms. And above all, They are extravagant. From Judah's perspective, they're wasteful, irresponsible. But the point is that they bring out into the open the tension between action based on common sense, predicted results, and those that seem to be done for no reason but love. I think John tells this story precisely because he knows it will make us uncomfortable, all of it, the nard, the hair, the intimacy, the departure from the norms. Our Lord ignores the practical objections and praises this foolish act of love. Is Mary a model for how Jesus wants us to love each other? Are we to love each other lavishly, foolishly, not counting the cost? This is not at all unusual when you think about it, not when people love deeply. A mother who really can't afford it buys her daughter that pair of red glittery shoes that she so loves. A father keeps his kids out of school one day to take them to opening day at the ballpark to spend time with them. A couple of gray-haired grown-ups hold hands and run down the beach, tracing their names in the sand. A friend throws a surprise party for her best friend, just to lift her spirits after a hard year. We'll see Jesus repeat something like Mary's act of love and hospitality with his disciples at another supper just down the road, in that upper room in Jerusalem. So when we hear Jesus say, leave her alone, we know that Mary's act of love and courage and extravagance is the model for his own passionate service. Or, do Mary's actions tell us more about God? Does this story give us a whiff of God's love? And in particular, how God's love is revealed through Jesus? Is the story telling us that there will be nothing economical about this man's death, 
just as there has been nothing economical about his life. In him, the extravagance of God's love is made flesh. In him, the excessiveness of God's mercy is made manifest. What is the fragrance of God's love? For the people in this story, God's love smells like their brother Lazarus, who has just been raised after four days in the tomb. And it smells like that whole bottle of perfume poured without regret because it is only a trifle compared to the magnitude of God's love that we see in Jesus. What might God's love smell like to us? For me, perhaps it's the aroma of the Friday night rest shelter, a mixture of Alice Graham's bubbling casserole topped with breadcrumbs made from Sunday morning's communion bread, Beatrice Gathara's wild rice and peas casserole, hot coffee, freshly laundered tablecloths and napkins, the flowers on the tables, and men who have just had a cigarette and haven't had a chance to shower for several days. Or maybe it's the aroma of the bread and the grape juice and the wine on the table this morning, sparking memories of the meal that we've shared for 2,000 years, a meal that binds us together as Christ's church and Christ's body in the world, a meal that symbolizes the loving fellowship that we share here, year after year, day in, day out, a fellowship that feeds us, upholds us, and sends us out to do God's work. Whatever God's love smells like to you, it is lavishly abundant. It is supposed to fill the room. It is supposed to trigger in us the memory of love that does not count the cost. And like the perfume of a lover, it is supposed to linger on us, stick with us, so that we carry it with us wherever we go. May it be so for you and for me. Amen.